So how's the remote thing going for you? It's going pretty good. I did a mixture of remote and office before, so it wasn't too much of an adaptation for me. But I think it's that, you know, there's that psychological thing that says, but now you have to be remote. Yeah, exactly. So I've got, you know, quite a posse here at home. So hopefully during this recording, we don't hear a lot of little pitter-patter above me. Usually I record Tuesdays through Thursdays during the day Mm -hmm. uh, because nobody's home, uh, which is fantastic. But that's probably not going to happen for quite a while. So we'll see how this goes. But yeah, I think that's the biggest adjustment is like my wife and I pretty much have to figure out, okay, when we have meetings, the other parent is kind of – you can work while the kids are around, but you have to like – somebody has to be available uh, in case somebody needs something, which usually happens with kiddos. So I think that's the big thing is just having people around all the time. It's going to drive me, I think, a little bit insane. Yeah. But I don't, yeah. But I don't catch the virus. Yeah. It's, uh, thankfully, at home, it's just my wife and myself. And we both have dedicated offices, which I think helps a lot. Oh, so nice. Yeah. You have a house? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We have this office here that I'm in. And then she just has another desk with a Windows PC and her laptop from work. I'm used to working from home. I've worked from home for almost 10 years now. Like most of my contracts have been remote. It's just worked out that way. So like the remote work thing, like I had that down. People are like, oh, have you heard about Zoom? And I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. Heard about Zoom. Let me tell you about this. Uh, You know, here, let me tell you how the teachers might want to live stream instead of using Zoom. Or let me tell you about how this technology, like I have all that stuff down. It's just now having to deal with people at home all the time. Yeah. Like we pretty much have a regimented schedule with the kiddos. It's like, okay, we're going to do this in the morning and then we're going to do this. And then mommy's going to be in her meeting and then daddy's going to be in his meeting. And then like now it's, uh, you know, evening, uh, here. So everybody's in bed and hopefully my wife's having easy time with that. But, um, I guess that's the big change for me. Yeah. I think, you know, once you, you sort of get used to the pattern, it's okay. What I've had to start doing is, um, putting some of my, you know, work meetings, which are on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, putting those on a sort of the family shared calendar. So, you know, it sort of helps map out the day in general. And, you know, like for today, you know, like this recording gets put on there. So it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to be unavailable during this time. And, you know, let's not go crazy and rebuild the house or anything in the meantime, you know? Right. No, no, no. That's a really great point. I think we should start doing that like with the family calendar. Cause it, the problem also is that meetings change, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the curveball that gets thrown at me is like, if a meeting changes then I've got to like figure out, okay, you know, that's fine. Thank God for the folks uh, who do streaming services, because when we're both in meetings, that's where we pull out the big cunts and we, we say, kids, go to the basement, you can watch something. But like, <laughs> yeah, for the most part, we've been able to handle that pretty well. And the weather's been nice. That's helped a lot. You know, it's, it's frustrating with the weather, right? Because, you know, my office here is at the, the front of the house. And so when I look out the window, it's like, looks fabulous outside and you can't do anything with it. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, so you're sort of inside working. And when you're, you're at home and you're working, it's like, okay, I can tell myself I'm working. But then once your day is over, you realize it's like you're never going to leave the office, you know? Yeah, totally. And that is definitely something to get used to. Yes. 
we had talked just before the recording about like my briefcase for the iPad and like there are days where I just am like, I'm going to go to Starbucks and work today because I need to get out of the house. I can't do that right now. Like and yeah. it kind of sucks uh, <laughs> Yeah, because it's going to drive me crazy. Um, so I know what you mean. How have you found most of your colleagues deal with the remote work situation? Pretty good. You know, it's funny. We have a bit of a, a joke going around with the teams today because as you know, and I think as we've mentioned before, um, you know, I manage groups of developers. And so, you know, kind of the in-joke at the moment is the developers will come on and they'll they'll say like, oh, there's a quarantine going on because, you know, developers don't go outside anyway. <laughs> so to them, it's like, I developers, didn't even know this was a thing, you know. <laughs> developers, introverts, this is like normal life. Yeah, this you is- know, it's like telling them there's daylight. It's like, what? what's daylight, you know? <laughs> um, so th- they're used to it. You know, a lot of, uh, in fact, nearly all of my team members except for a couple, are remote to me in some way. So for us, it's been very little adjustment as far as daily workflows and, you know, scrum meetings and that kind of thing go. So for us, it's kind of almost business as usual. It, it is just that that knowing of, you know, okay, can't go to the office to pick up some piece of hardware that you need, you know, something like that. Uh, but, you know, the, for us, it, it's just sort of business as usual for the most part. Yeah. It almost seems like the rest of the world is starting to find out what it's like to actually like work from home. Those who can, you know, unfortunately there's some folks who just, it really sucks, but like the market, the market isn't doing good for them because they have no way to like not work from home. And a lot of those businesses are hurting, but for folks like us, it's like you said, business as usual for the most part. Yeah. It's interesting. And, I think what's going to be very interesting is once this is over and it's dealt with and we we get back to quote-unquote normal life, I think it's going to be interesting to see what companies do because we've, they've been put in this situation where everybody who can work remote has been forced to and all those companies who have always put forward the arguments of, you know, don't like remote workers because I don't think they're working and things like that, this is the opportunity to prove it works. Right. And and how they'll deal with that and how they'll accept it once everybody starts going back to offices. You know, will this become more acceptable in mainstream business? Do you know what I mean? I think what COVID has done has accelerated that process that mm. was already happening where everything was moving remote. And, you know, we'll talk about conferences and stuff like that as well. But like the whole industry that had been slowly moving that way, very slowly moving that way in the last 10 years, I think it's really accelerated that it's kind of taken off the trailing wheels from the bike, so to speak. And now it's like, we kind of, you kind of have to work remote or you're really screwed. And I think that's kind of what's happening. And I think as typical with most of these recessions, a lot of industries are just going to die because they're not going to be necessary anymore to a lot of businesses. It's just, it's just the way it is. And I, you know, I'm hoping, and I think it's going to be a fairly quick recovery because I think the demand is there, but mm-hmm. like, there's going to be stuff that's just not going to come back because like, you know, people just don't do that stuff anymore <laughs> and it's not necessary. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think it's a good point that you make. It's going to be very interesting when we, we've sort of flipped the switch and go back to the new normal, because in some ways, it almost is kind of like work 2.0 at that point, right? We've right. either proven this works or we've found the flaws and we'll fix them. And 
for so many people, like you say, developers and remote teams, it's very much a case of, well, welcome to my world. I told you it worked and it was okay. Right. You know, I think the biggest problem I'm sure right now still for a lot of companies and maybe even, you know, certain levels within companies is the trust factor. I've got to trust that you're, you're at home and you're working. And, you know, if you say you're going to be working at home, say nine to five, that you're actually doing it. And that's, I think, is the big stumbling block. I know, for example, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken with, they're having a lot more video conferences almost as a way to say, prove that you're sitting in front of the machine. Mm, Wow. Yeah. You know, so it very much does come down to, I think, like you say, certain companies, certain industries, whether it's something that is so alien to them that they're afraid of it or those that have kind of been reluctant but knew it was a thing. You know, right. I mean, God forbid you surf Reddit and Facebook, you know, at home, you have to do it in the office nine to five. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what work, work hours are for. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's also one of those, it's like, you thought the VPN was slow at the office. It's even worse when you get home. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, it's been interesting. I know, for example, we switched to using Microsoft Teams. Now, that's pretty much like a Slack competitor, correct? I would describe it exactly as a Slack competitor, yeah. Okay. And it's been interesting to see a lot of those, you know, like Zoom, Teams, not so much with Slack, because I think Slack has been doing it so long that they've got it down now. But Mm -hmm. we've been seeing some services kind of stumble a little bit because they've got this massive influx of users that, you know, they never, in their wildest dreams, I think, would have expected to have every day, you know? And so sometimes you'll see like Teams and some of the other services just kind of stutter a little bit and sort of, you know, I don't want to say collapse, but certainly show the stress of the network. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Our sponsor this week is Bright Digit. Bright Digit is my company and we specialize in helping businesses build apps for the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple Watch, and the Mac. I've been building apps for iOS for almost 10 years now. We have an opening for new projects. If you are a company who might already have developers but need help building something for any of the Apple platforms, send me an email and let's see what BrightDigit can do for you. Contact me personally at leo at brightdigit.com. That's L-E-O at brightdigit.com. And let's see how I can help you and your business. So, Peter, glad to have you on again. I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself one more time. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me. So, I'm Peter Whittem. I'm a longtime developer. And, you know, these days I manage some groups of mobile development teams, both Android and iOS. But the developer side never left me. So, you know, I think a lot of people know me online right now as compileswift.com, which is kind of you know, my home for all things Swift. I'm a massive fan of the Swift programming language. So that's what I do. Awesome. Thanks again. You were on previously, we did that episode on managing teams. And we talked just a little bit about remote work, which I'm sure, you know, that involves managing teams as well. And you've been doing that for a while, it sounds like. We got a lot to talk about. I think we talked about the remote work stuff. So let's Okay, if we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, it would be, what are they going to do for WWDC? (laughs) Are they going to do it remote? And now it's like, uh, but hopefully by the time we release this episode, it won't change. But like, 
Do you think there's a possibility that they'll cancel WWDC at all? And I say that because of Google I.O., right? Like they, they canceled Google I.O. So now it's like, could they possibly cancel WWDC this year? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very real question that I think a lot of us have been discussing, hoping that we don't have the answer that's going to be, you know, what we don't want to hear is no. But I don't think they will. And, and I, certainly a lot of that is hoping that they won't because I feel this is Apple's opportunity to really show where they shine and take their tools, their platforms, you know, to the next level and say, look, you know what? You can, you can do remote conferencing and you can use our iPads, you know, our Macs, the software and all these things. And as if you was actually at the conference, you, you know what I mean? Not just mm-hmm. like streaming of a conference, but I think it's their chance to shine. But I think it's going to be very different. Let's put it that way. There's a couple of thoughts that I have. One is how are they going to have the opportunity to record videos for WWDC if nobody can go to the office? That would be one concern. However, and we'll talk about the new iPad in a little bit, but there was recently a video about the new iPad that Craig Federici put out. And so that gives you an idea of, okay, this might be a preview of how they might go about like recording videos for the conference. So that's, I think that would be the main concern is like, how are they actually going to record videos and produce them in time if everybody's at home? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, last year we saw them kind of play around with this idea. There were some sessions that were pre-recorded and obviously, you know, they were quite noticeably different than the, the presence on stage where they were recorded live. And we notice too, when like new iPhones or new watches come out with like, especially new screen sizes, they might put out a little video that like is a quote unquote WWDC video, but it's essentially because of the new model. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like that, that close analogy as well. This is where I think the problem is going to be for WWDC is how do you make it feel like Apple with that, the one or two, hopefully more big announcements that that really is what we expect from an Apple gathering, you know, be it a developer conference or a press event. Well, now that you've got to face the reality of doing it online, how do you make that stand out? Like you say, from something like, here's a, you know, small little video we put together that's cute that tells you about new the watch iPad features. Pro cursor. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. How do you, so how do you make it as grandiose as we come to expect from Apple? How do you make, you know, the, the masses excited about a video? That's the problem, I think. Do you think they're going to even do like a press junket? I don't think so. I almost feel in some ways, this is the opportunity for Apple to say, okay, let's take it back to being a developer's conference. You know, but the problem there would be that the market, of course, always demands that anytime Apple does anything, it's going to be something the world will go crazy about, right? Rather than just the developers. And that's kind of, I think, why they stopped doing Macworld as well. You know, so right now it's a case of do you go back to pure developers or do you keep this kind of press event on the first day and then developers for the rest of the week? And how do you do that? with a video. And I I just don't think they can. Right. 
I mean, the, I'm a Nintendo fanboy, and the closest I can think of is like what Nintendo would do, it like at E3, where they just have some pre-recorded video, and it's like they're not even at the event, and it's pretty much here's our new games, and like I feel like that's what Apple would end up doing. Like even assuming that they put out new hardware, and mm. already like last year was so momentous with, uh, for instance, for us, you know, Swift UI, but Catalyst and the Mac Pro. I felt like the expectations this year were less, but not in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we've talked about on the last episode, we talked about how, you know, their crazy release cycle and how screwed a lot of people were with iOS 13. My feeling would be is that iOS 14 is just not going to be that momentous in the first place. It's going to be another back to bug fix type release anyways. So if anything, like the expectations for this year were already for like refinements in a lot of way. I think we'd all be happy with that, right? You know, let's yeah, have exactly. one of those years. You know, hey, there's, you know, here's a few extra little things that we've put in, but we're just totally going to, you know, fix those bugs this year and get back to really making it a solid platform ready to kick off next year with with a next big release. Like you say, we'd spoken about this previously and I I totally feel that that is the way to go, you know, have a big release. It's kind of like the, you know, the iPhone S, right? Have a big release, have an update, you know, fix right. the things and then right. have another one. I think at this point, I hope that I'm wrong, but even Apple now feel like they're struggling every year to what's the big thing we can do this year. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget all the quote unquote big things that they've released that have gone like by the wayside. Like all the little watch OS one features that people forgot about or like message apps yeah. or uh, stickers. Like, I don't know how big of a deal those things ever ended up being. And I know they keep trying to do AR kit and we'll talk about the LIDAR stuff later, but like they, I always feel like they're chasing, like they want to make iMessage a little bit more Snapchat. Like they're always trying to chase something that isn't necessarily their audience really cares about, but it always seems like they're trying to pump new features that aren't necessarily all that robust. And I think like they're turning the corner on that. I feel like they're doing a lot more, you know, we'll talk about the iPad cursor, for instance, you know, that's something people have wanted and a few other things that people have wanted that have kind of, I don't want to say given up the fight on, but they've kind of acquiesced to what most people had been wanting anyways. Yeah. So I feel like this is an opportunity for that where they just pretty much do a nice bug clean on OSs, but also on the SDKs to make them a little bit more robust. Right. I agree. I think, you know, I think that Apple is still going through this difficult period where they've gone from being the leader and, you know, of so many innovations and now we've lived with those for so long that as users, we now know what we can do with them, what we want to do with them. And now Apple is having to face the reality of they've got what they want, but it turns out the users want something slightly different. And I feel like the messaging is a good example of that. You know, there's lots of rumors at the moment about the messaging app going to Android. And I can certainly see the value in that, but I don't think Android users would care. That's the problem. And I think that sometimes Apple needs to stop and say, you know, there's our plan, but is it worth doing? You know, right. and that's kind of the difficulty with some of these. And maybe having that extra gap of a year between big releases 
gives them a chance to really understand the market a little bit more rather than just continually going forward believing it'll happen. Right. You know, I agree with that. It's been, it was last year, last March or last April when they did the big presentation on services. Mm-hmm. I'm sure those numbers are going up, but I don't know that like necessarily their TV service is like, they're not going to release those numbers, but I, yeah. I can't imagine it's doing, it's not, probably not doing bad, but it's probably not doing fantastic. Like, I agree. Nobody's going to break their back to get every single show on Apple TV. Like they're just not. They're not that great already. Well, I so think, I think that's one of the big problems. I think you're right. And, you know, I, I think talking about Apple TV Plus now for a second, it's a good example, sort of firsthand experience for me. So, you know, it was back in very late December of 19. I ordered a 16-inch MacBook Pro. And, you know, you get hardware. They give you Apple TV Plus free for a year. Okay. And so I've had it all this time. And, you know, several times I've opened it up and it's one of those things where I really want to like it and want to use it. And not because it's free, but because I want it to be a service that I'm willing to pay for. But even though I've had it free for that long, every time I open it, I just look around and it's like, there's there's nothing on here I want to use it for. Right. It just doesn't grab me like the other services. And... I think this is a problem for Apple. You know, we've seen them do, you know, shows in the past that just completely fall flat. Right. Because it's not their, you know, they're, they are superb at providing. They are not that great at making. That's the problem. You know, when it comes to content, providing content and making these shows and, and maybe even choosing the companies that they choose to make them with, they just seem to have either really bad luck or just completely misunderstand the market. Right. I think that's very, very acute. Uh, or That's very right. I totally agree. One question that I have, we can start talking a little bit about topics, but the idea behind services is that they want to do make more money on services rather than necessarily selling hardware. Okay, fine. When I think of the big five or the big four companies that sell services, I don't think of like Netflix or Disney. I think of Microsoft and I think of Amazon because they make a lot of money. Like Amazon, people don't, I think, realize how much money Amazon makes off of AWS. Mm-hmm. It's their bread and butter. Like the store is just nothing but a facade over over. AWS and how big of a monster that is. Yeah. Uh, and Microsoft is doing like they've turned around. They're way past the days of Windows and they're making a decent, decent amount on Azure. And like, so I feel like Apple, if they want to like make money off of services in cloud, like why don't, <laughs> why don't they have a cloud and service for back end for their apps? That's robust. Like that's how you're going to make the money. Like, I don't know if I have an answer to that. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I think part of the problem is, you know, not only as a consumer, but as a developer as well, and somewhat of an Apple fanboy. I don't think I'm, you know, I don't, not a complete fanboy, but certainly Apple's my first choice on things. And the problem is that when I think of services and Apple, I think, oh, yeah, how many times have they tried to reboot iCloud or, yeah. you know, and just completely missed the mark? How many, you know, and then of course, there's like the ping service with, I, I mean, 
you know, this was back when iTunes was the thing, right? You know, I mean, you couldn't have right. had a better market. It's like you got it and somehow you still didn't get it right. And, you know, iCloud now is great. And so it's it's not perfect, but it's significantly better than it used to be. So why don't they start taking a look at that and saying, okay, well, like you say, how can we leverage this into turning other services on? You know, for example, you know, we've got the iCloud storage. There's got to be ways that we can capitalize on this and and turn it into a better service for other parts of platforms. And And that's like where they're going to make their money. They're going to make their Mm -hmm. money off of businesses buying their services. Absolutely. Not, you know, mom and pop wanting to watch whatever amazing stories on Apple TV plus like it just, that's, that's where the money is. And I don't understand the, it seems superficial to want to have a TV streaming service as opposed to a robust backend for their developers and companies and on uh, the enterprise. So, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, like a perfect example, you know, probably we've both heard this so many times and it's one of those, it's like, yeah, why didn't that happen? You know, is Apple, why have you not bought Dropbox yet? You know, Apple, why didn't you buy Netflix? It's the same exactly. situation. Yeah. I read this crazy, <laughs> there was something the other day and maybe it was one of the, you know, it may have been one of the Slack channels that you and I hang out on. I can't remember. Someone was saying about Apple, why haven't you bought Disney yet? Solve the problem that way. I mean, was Iger, wasn't Iger on the Apple board or uh, Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs was on the Disney one, but I, I right, do because recall he someone had a, on Disney. Because of Pixar, yeah. Yeah, and then someone on Disney was on the Apple. Maybe it was right. Iger. I can't remember now, but I think it was like a one-for-one, one. yeah. And whilst on the surface, you're like, this sounds ludicrous, but it's like, you know, this would solve your problem. Right, right. That makes a lot more sense. And I don't know how much it would cost, but I don't know about Apple buying Disney, but I mean, Disney certainly has been buying quite a few studios. I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised Apple hasn't bought one itself. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I was almost expecting it to happen. You know, and then there's there's other areas too, like, for example, on the development side, you know, there's third-party services that are doing so well and it's it's hard to not mention names, but uh, well, for example, is BitRise. They're really doing well at the development service for, hey, we'll you know push your files to the cloud and we'll do your builds for you. How is Apple not doing something like that? Yes. You know, it's perfect for Apple. I mean, it's like it's your tools, right? You know, right. just build a your- storage farm somewhere and go for it, <laughs> right? And I mean, the services, people love services like Mac Stadium and stuff for, mm-hmm. you know, doing their Mac stuff in the cloud. But imagine Apple, not necessarily like Sherlocking it, but just like putting first party, making it a high priority that having Macs in the cloud are like first rate citizens and not just some weird geeky hackintosh yeah. that, you know, Frankenstein monster that only works, but has quite the audience because developers need something like that. I wonder if part of the problem, though, as you're saying that, and I was thinking about it, you know, it comes back to maybe the part of the problem is Apple has now spread itself across so many things and been successful at so many things that it really now is almost kind of snow blind to, well, what is it? What was our end goal? 
Right? Mm. You know, we've now got so many things that are doing well and some that aren't doing great. And we changed our name from Apple Computer to Apple. But now we don't have a direct focus of our future is this. It seems to be this year we're doing this. Last year we did that. Next year it's something else. And there's no clear focus for the future. Right. And iPhone, like, it goes without saying, iPhone is an absolute beast. Oh, like, absolutely. Going back yeah. to, we talk about Amazon and AWS, like the iPhone for Apple is the same thing. Like everything else just barely eclipses how much money they make on the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem too, is just like the iPhone's such a massive product. It's hard to see through that. I think they're getting better at it because it's pretty much stabilized mm-hmm. and plateaued. So I, I think they kind of see that it's important to spread themselves out a little bit outside of the iPhone space. But yeah. Yeah. Totally. It sounds kind of funny sometimes when I say it to myself, but Apple has a long-term problem, which is the iPhone. Right. You know, is you don't want to become, oh, you know, remember Nokia, the phone company. You know, right. you don't want to be Apple, the phone company, Microsoft, oh, the Windows company. These, This was the problem. IBM, the business machine Exactly, company. Yeah. yeah. You know, and this was the problem. And, and I get that Apple's trying different things, but I feel sometimes a lot of those areas that they try suffer because it's keep shipping those iPhones, keep shipping those iPads. Eventually, that you reach a point where you're only going to sell so many and the world says, oh, we got enough. Right. That's the problem right now. It's that problem of saturation where it's just like anybody who's going to have an iPhone, like, and I don't know when they're going to come out with this iPhone 9 or iPhone SE to like a budget, new budget phone. But like, that's pretty much their only way to expand out is by either a make people be multi-product, right? Have iPhone and a Mac and an iPad or come up with a budget phone for people who just don't have the money to spend because iPhones are expensive. They just, they are. I think I may have mentioned this to you before in conversation. You know, when I see the statistics for the amount of users that use our iOS applications, the iPhone XR is the big spike. Yes. You know, which is fascinating to me because I wouldn't expect that to be the case. You know, yeah, I, I right. would think mid-range phone, upper end. I It says a lot to me that the, it seems kind of funny to say low-end iPhone because I don't think there is such a thing, but... It's a mid, it's a mid-range iPhone. Yeah, you know, it is such a beast on sales. And yeah. the apps that I see and the install rate is just so much more than, like the iPhone 11, it's not doesn't really stand out in the crowd you know interesting yeah so the iphone 10r is like a year and a half old right yeah 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 in fact okay. it's, it's probably about due right for a bit of a revamp there i would think maybe a little bit overdue yeah i mean the iphone 11 was kind of that revamp right yeah and you know do we get the 11s max this year you know yeah, who knows <laughs> well i mean i think they're going to be delayed, like that's for sure. So oh. they might, who even knows, like what's going to happen in September? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens with the twelve or eleven S or whatever they're going to call it. I think iPhone would be doing the world and themselves a favor if they, you know, as some people have suggested, drop the number altogether. Because I agree that yes. way they don't have to put up with the jokes about every year the phone looks the same, right? You know, and just say. 
it's the iPhone. Just keep right. it simple. I agree. I mean, they did that to the iPad pretty early on. So yeah, and it's worked. I'm surprised out they didn't do that with the iPhone. Soon yeah. enough. Yeah, you know, and it's it's worked out great for the iPad. Although we slowly sort of crept into the the iPad Pro, the you know the Air and the Mini. But I yes. feel like they've learned the lesson and like, oh, it was so much better when people just went to the store and said, "I want an iPad." <laughs> <laughs> you know. All right, I want to talk about. SDK topics that they might cover supposedly in the next WWDC. Yeah. So top of my list, I have Swift UI. Like I think without a doubt, they're going to have not a revamp, but just a refinement of the SDK for Swift UI. I think so too. I think Swift UI has been embraced by the community, even in such early stages with such love. You know, every time I, do anything with it. And I don't, I'm not using it in production, not because I don't think I could, but I just haven't had a product yet that's like, oh, great, I could use Swift UI. But everything that I've done and played around, and it's just so easy to get along with. And even in this early day of, you know, the 1.0 with all of its problems, that to me is very significant is that We've got all these problems. It's a 1.0 product, and yet it is so wonderful to get along with that you can only but wonder, what is Swift UI 2 going to be like? Right. You know, there's going to be so much in there. I think one thing that I think we all want to see is all of the remaining controls need to be added. That's yes. that's the only way it's going to get adopted, I think. Yep. That. Um, so you like your collection view, for instance, some of the little widgets that mm-hmm. you get with the table view that you don't get with the list. I think those are going to move over. And I think fundamentally it's just a lot of like refinement of the SDK and some of the terminology that's used. I think that's going to be the big thing and just bug fixes, just general bug fixes yeah. with Swift UI to make it a little bit more consistent. It's definitely a case of a product that was built with the audience already there. I think developers were just desperate for something to replace storyboards and coding UIs and stuff like that. And like they see what other web communities do, especially the JavaScript stuff with uh, React or Vue. And uh, they're like desperate for having something like that, like the reactive functional stuff in Swift. And you could tell like people have been wanting this for a long time. Yeah. I, you know, it's, um, I, Terrible confession time. <laughs> I have a, a, there's a shipping product uh, built with React Native. So, you know, we went through and said, okay, you know, we all want Swift UI to be the future, but let's give this a go. I'll admit, I was shocked and very surprised how easy it was to switch to using React Native for something and to make just beautiful interfaces. And, nice. and just make it work so well. And this was with developers who were, you know, hardcore Android and, you know, Objective-C and Swift. So I'd love for Swift to leap far enough ahead this year that we could look at it and go, great, let's do it again, but with Swift this time. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. You know, I think Swift UI is very difficult to, to not talk about Catalyst being part of that, that whole equation. What's your opinion on Catalyst? I love the idea. And and I put it that way right now because 
I've tried a few things with it and I don't think anybody believed the hype of you just check this checkbox and away it goes in Xcode that they told us last year. But mm. it, I think that it, very much like SwiftUI, it needs, you need to convince me, yeah, this is how I should do this. You know, I should live with the pain of figuring these things out because it's worth it. Because right now, I think, you know, it would be just as easy to build a UI with SwiftUI for an iPad and then go back and do the same thing for a Mac, for example, and then just use the same business layer underneath as opposed to going this catalyst route and just wrapping it all into one. But I'm hoping that it's because it's such early days. I had Daniel Jalka on last year, and that's when I realized you could use SwiftUI on AppKit um, as a replacement for AppKit. So, like, the question then ends up being is why would you choose SwiftUI Catalyst over SwiftUI AppKit or Mac or whatever you want to call it? No, you're right. You know, I have a personal app that I I wanted an excuse to make a macOS application, and so I was like, great, I'm going to do it. So I made this one for myself, but and I I didn't even use Swift UI. I just went ahead and used AppKit, you know, mm-hmm. and suffered through. I'll, I'll be honest, I was a little surprised how different it was, having never built a Mac app before. And then I went back and said, okay, now can I do this with Swift UI? And I hit some limitations, but was very pleasantly surprised how quick I could do what I needed. And I was kind of in the same boat. Was like, well, why would I do this with Catalyst? Right. That's kind of where I sit now is give me that that magic thing that makes me go, oh, I get it. That's why I should do it. No, like could Catalyst be a Band-Aid for like, let's say you're a company with an iPad app. And like could Catalyst be like a Band-Aid until you get that fully native Mac app out? Like be like, I, hey, here's our first version. It's built in Catalyst. Shh. But then like come out with version two that's just built like raw Swift UI. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like it's. Maybe, you know, like, hey, you need to get that prototype to the market real quickly to prove the business right. case. And, right. and yeah, you're right. Maybe, maybe that's exactly where that sits. And eventually, it'll either be morphed into something else or go away, and we just won't even be talking about it. Right. You know, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, it is kind of my rush prototype to market. You know, we've seen some good Catalyst applications like but what? I, um, you know, I've, I'm trying to think. There was one that I played around with. It was in our Slack groups that we belong to, and someone recommended it. And I took a look, and it was a social, you know, social network app. I can't remember which one. And it was, it was nothing special, but it was done in a way that's like, okay, I can use this. Okay. And I think, like, if the UI is conducive to where it doesn't need to be super specialized and it can yeah. just be a clone of what's on the iPad, then it makes sense. I think that's why. Uh, and that works. covers like maybe, I don't know what percent, but roughly like half of the apps out there, maybe 20% of the apps out there don't need like an absolute like Mac app. They're just like Slack, for instance. I yeah. mean, Slack is basically like could probably be the same thing on the iPad as it is on the Mac and it would be fine for a while. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think you're right. And I, you know, so many things that I've seen out there, it's like, oh, yeah, you used Catalyst and it's just, it's kind of those early iPhone days and, and um, iPad days where it's like, it's just a bigger version of the iPhone app. Yeah, so, exactly. So exactly. like you say, it's like, you've put this on the Mac because someone in business said you needed a Mac app and there it is, yep. you know, as opposed to we need a Mac app, but we're going to make it 
be a Mac app. And I think that's part of the problem too. You know, if I'm a Mac user, I expect certain things. If I'm an iPad user, I expect certain things. And I don't think anyone's really building that at the moment. Right. Yep. Apple Watch. Apple Watch. I still struggle with Apple Watch. I've got um, the previous gen. Uh, what was that? The fourth generation? Was that the first That's one? That's what I have too. Yeah, yeah. the 44 mil. Yep. And, you know, ever since I had the first version when it came out, it's something I love, but I still can't figure out why I'm using it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, like not having the phone around for notifications and doing uh, like workouts, that's the big benefit to me and like some text messaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to think they could refine a lot of the OS to be a little bit more of a battery hog in a good way. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially when it comes to like networking. Yeah. The big push towards independent watch apps. I think they should continue that. Like luckily we'll see like StoreKit now supposedly works in watchOS. 6.2, which I think is what came out this week. I think it was 6.2, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, like, hopefully we'll see it continue. I think that's the big push is towards that independent watch apps and more, like, networking, more of the behind-the-scenes stuff that we want to see out of apps. Yeah. That'll make apps a little bit more useful. I think what it is, because you're right, you know, if, if someone said to me, why do you have a, an Apple Watch and what's the most, you know, why is it valuable to you? For me without question, notifications. You know, it essentially, I have it, like you say, so I don't have to carry my iPhone. I get my notifications. But then anytime I want to do something with that, I'm reaching for the phone, which is where it sort of flags and tells me that's the problem. It's almost like when you're using an iPad and you only can get so far and then you want to get your Mac. <laughs> yes, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what it's like. Um, because as you say that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can think of so many times in the past I've done that. You know, um, it's like I start to write a blog post on my iPad and then I need yes. a picture or a screen grab and I'm like, oh, I got to go find that on the Mac. And then you're on the Mac and so it's like, well, I'll stay here now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, you nailed it. Yeah. And I think, though, like, it's better that I can't do everything on the watch that I can do on the phone. Like, mm-hmm. I actually don't mind that so much. But when it's the iPad and the Mac, that's more of a disappointment because I feel like the iPad should be a much more robust device, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I was going to say, we may we may be getting there, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll probably see something about machine learning. I think that's the big thing, right? Everybody's, you know, machine learning is the big thing for most companies, right? Yeah. yeah. So there'll always be something. I don't know how they're going to do their AR demo of whatever game, now that nobody's <laughs> going to be there, but yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we get an AR version of Tim on my desk in front of me doing the keynote. Oh, it's like Star Wars. Yeah. Nice. Like a hologram, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> I can see him with the little wig with the, you know, the buns of hair. and the <laughs> WWDC developers, you're my only hope. Yeah, exactly. Nailed it. That's um, what's going to happen. <laughs> so cloud and server, we talked about that a little bit. Like, I, I hope they do a little bit more in that space because uh, yes. I feel like I found apps without a back end just don't last very long. And it'd be nice if Apple really wants to do stuff and services I've hammered this, like they should do more in that space. Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of vapor. We had Tim on. Oh, yep. 
few uh, weeks ago, and uh, I know Vapor 4 is either out today or it's going to be out pretty soon. And uh, Vapor is awesome. Still yep. writing apps for it. So, Yeah, and I'm going to give a shameless plug for you because um, I signed up on your email list and I've been following through the posts that have the Vapor on there. So, Oh, nice. I have to update that tutorial for Vapor 4. That's one of my projects, one of my coronavirus at home projects oh, is nice. really deep diving into vapor for and updating that tutorial. Yeah. And I'll post a link to that as well. Great. So yeah, vapor for if just to let you know, it's similar to how it uses property wrappers the way they should be used. Just like Swift UI does. Nice. And that's okay. really, I'm really impressed with what that team has done there. Yeah. Vapor is, is amazing. And that's not to take away from the other server side platforms that are out there. But I feel like Vapor is the one that they just, they're getting it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's talk about Xcode on the iPad. Do you think it's going to happen? Oh, I I would pay money for it. (laughs) I think if you was to ask a room full of developers who don't own an iPad, hands up who would buy an iPad if Xcode was on it. How many hands would you see? I think everybody. Um. So, you know, for me, I already carry around, well, (laughs) when I used to have to go to an office, (laughs) I was carrying two laptops, you know, two Mac laptops, plus my iPad. So to be able to ditch one laptop and carry, say, a laptop and an iPad would be fabulous because, you know, Xcode is the reason that you really need a super powerful laptop, right? If you can find a way to get around that, I think at this point, uh, certainly working from home, I've established, I can do pretty much everything else on my iPad. Right. Yeah. You know. So the thing I like about my iPad is that I can't open Xcode because that is a temptation to me that I try to avoid when I'm doing office stuff or blogging or things like that. But I totally, I totally understand your point. Interesting. Yeah, so how about... You know, are you a big user of, say, like Swift Playgrounds on the iPad? Uh, I've dabbled in it. It's okay. We'll get into Swift Playgrounds on the Mac, which I think is a, is an interesting thing. But going back to the point, what I would hope is if they do Xcode on the iPad, and I've talked about this before, I hope it's like a real revamp of Xcode. Like, from the ground up, simplify things so that Xcode is not this massive application that can compile 20-year-old C code. But like, like, what if you just have Xcode only work, uh, only build SwiftUI apps and Swift packages, and that's it? And like, Interesting. really yeah. limit it to future development and then get rid of a lot of that legacy cruft that Xcode has. Um, and then my hope is that that would be a nice dry run for future overhaul of Xcode on the Mac. Does that make sense? It does. And it presents an interesting opportunity to give Apple a way to break free and say, you know, yeah, we're going to kill off so much stuff in this heavy application that we just don't need anymore. And from some of the frameworks and the kits and everything else, if you went the route of saying something like, you know, Xcode Swift for iPad and just being Swift. Yep. That is such an interesting idea that I'd never thought of. 
And, and almost like Playgrounds yeah. kind of dabbles in that, right? Like, because it's completely Swift, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's that I feel like is Apple's pattern is that they, they'll iTunes something to where it's like bloated and they're just like, screw it. We're going to kill it and start from scratch with a music app and, you know, a podcast app and so on. Mm-hmm. I feel like they do that a lot to where they just, something gets so bloated. It's like, they just kill it and start from scratch. And I feel that that's the case with Xcode. Like Xcode is just so massive and has so much legacy history behind it that it's like, 90% of developers don't write apps that use C and objective C. Well, maybe, maybe objective C, but like if you can cover like 40 to 60% of app developers, especially new ones mm-hmm. with a new app that just does Swift packages and does Swift UI apps, like the latest tech, then I think that would be a pretty, uh, pretty slim light and powerful tool. Yeah, I think you're onto something. And I think that it plays back into how you were saying as well with Apple services. It gives them an opportunity to open up a whole slew of services that they can tie in with it. You know, I think one time I was talking with someone and I I had this idea of, you know, well, Xcode on iPad would be the front end to a server somewhere else that's compiling the code for me. You know, and this would be a way for Apple to get in that services game and really step that up, right? And, you know, it helps their bottom line too, because if you give me Xcode for free on the iPad and I pay, I don't know, let's just say $10 a month for kind of like a BitRise service where I push to my repo and it picks it up and does the build, delivers the app back onto my iPad, something like that. I would totally buy into that yeah. because I don't need the power. I don't need the storage, you know, and all of those things. My code is backed up on a server somewhere else and the iPad is my UI into it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, these iPads are probably powerful enough to compile the code anyways, but it's nice Mm -hmm. to have like some sort of CI service attached to it as well, especially if you're running a more standard iPad. Totally. Right. And with that code sitting back there, it works beautifully for teams, you know? Exactly. I feel like that's the way to go. It's like a sort of Xcode light in Mm -hmm. many ways. You know, we've seen people offer services and apps where you pull up a web page on a, on an iPad and it's an IDE. So, you know, if third party service, or this is what I always say to myself, if a third party group of developers can do it, then there's no excuse in the world really why Apple can't do it because they've got infinitely more money and availability of developers than anybody else. Yeah, exactly. They've just got to want to do it at that point. So what's your thoughts on Swift Playgrounds on the Mac? So I've been playing around with it the past few days because I like it on the iPad, but I found that actually, and I'm hoping it's one of those, it's early days, and I was inspired to use it because I was listening to, um, I think it was one of John Sindel's podcasts recently where he was talking to two Apple developers who worked, one of them at least, worked on Swift Playgrounds for the Mac. So I thought, oh, I should really spin this up and play with it. And I liked it, but the problem I found was it was surprisingly very slow. Okay. 
And I don't know. It's one of those where you're like, why is this so slow? And this is a Catalyst app, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and so it wasn't a good sales pitch for Catalyst. That was part of the problem. But I would find like, you know, like, let's just say you make a struct, for example, and then you go to use it, you know, the auto completion would just take a few seconds before it would come up and go, oh, yeah, here it is, which is not something you would expect on a Mac, mm-hmm. you know. And and I couldn't figure out. At one point, I even had this theory going that is it sending it back to a server and then coming back to me or something? Because it kind of felt like that. Did you figure it out? No, it's still doing it. And it's really weird. And this is on Catalina, by the way, just just for reference. Yeah. So I found that I was going back to building a Swift playground in Xcode because it's just beautifully fast. So I'm hoping it's just because it's early days because I think it shows a lot of promise. And if even better, if I could have a space, and I haven't checked this with the iPad version where, you know, I save my files on the iPad, they're available on the Mac or vice versa, you tie in the iCloud or the background, that will be great because then I can... I can sort of play around with ideas on one or the other and then take it with me and keep playing. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Like my problem with playgrounds all like even playgrounds on Xcode is really slow. Like honestly, do you not have that problem? It's not been noticeably slow for me, but I'm not one of those people who uses it to, you know, like for example, I don't have it render out you know, a view with controls and that. Right. I use it very much for building uh, models and playing around with that kind of thing. Where So there's no uh, real rendering elements. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's part of that factor. Yeah, I kind of use it like a test bed for different SDKs and APIs. Yeah. Or if I need to just write a script real quick to do something in Swift, I use Playgrounds and I've found that like Playgrounds tends to be... Um, it just tends to be slow and like buggy at times to the point where it's just like, this is a, like, I may as well just write a Mac, a quick command line tool in Mac to do it because it ends up being taking so long. I find it yeah. useful for like educational purposes, but other than that, I find playgrounds to be like, they end up getting slow after a while when you try to do anything mildly complex. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I've never really had one open for a long time. So maybe that's part of the factor there. And I think part of the undelivered promise, and maybe since I'm not so much in the educational as in schools and that kind of thing, maybe I'm just not seeing it. But part of the undelivered excitement and promise was this idea of Swift Playground books. Yes. And you, I don't really feel that I've seen anything come from that yet. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I feel like that's really... At least when I first heard about Swift Playgrounds on on the iPad and now on the Mac, you know, it was very much in that educational realm as how it was kind of sold. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's used. I don't doubt that. I wonder, though, if it's not really got the traction that was expected. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, and certainly making a Swift Playground book, I've tried it a couple of times. And to be honest, it's way more involved than I feel it should be for people to want to do it, if that makes sense. I think I had issues the last time I tried it because the tools in their documentation was for like Xcode 11.2 or 
uh-huh. and maybe even like 10. And like, I couldn't get half of the stuff to work because I had Xcode 11.3. It was just stupid stuff okay. like that. And I was just like, well, this isn't worth it. Like I may as well just share, share my code through GitHub. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Like, like that's what ends up happening. Yeah. And I think you're right. And you know, part of the, it's almost like its own curse because now that GitHub and Xcode work so well together that I think, you know, maybe you do like I do and I just push things to GitHub because it's just so seamless. I don't even think twice about it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We're going to continue our discussion with Peter in the next episode. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the Apple hardware that came out in March you can find Peter's material for his podcast, CompileSwift.com. That's his blog and his podcast. His Twitter is at CompileSwift. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at LeoGDion. And you can find my company, BrightDigit, BrightDigit.com. Website for this podcast and notes are at EmpowerApps.show. If you could tweet at me, let me know what you think of what you expect from WWDC this year, as well as any reviews that you can post to Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify would be very, very helpful. Thanks again, and I look forward to talking to you again very shortly with the second part of this episode.